I just kept searching and searching and searching. And on like page 58, I found a phone number for Amazon headquarters, Jeff Bezos' office, and called it and just said, I lied. I just said, hi, I'm actually having a package sent for Jeff's birthday. Do I have the correct address? And the person said, yep, that's correct. This is Jeff's office. I'm like, oh, awesome, great. Thanks so much, and hung up the phone. Welcome to The Road to Why by the Northern Trust Institute, a show where business owners and entrepreneurs discuss their life's work and explore the intersection of business, family, wealth, and legacy. I'm your host, Eric Shapea, Director of Business Services at Northern Trust. My guests today are the quintessential entrepreneurs. Vanessa Troyer and Chris Ferentinos identified a trend, they took risks, they started their business, Architectural Mailboxes, in Redondo Beach, California. They grew the business astronomically, and after 20 years, they decided to sell the business. But too often when we hear the entrepreneur's story, the focus is on the business and the money. Any business owner who has sold their business will tell you, it's not just about the money. So our story today will cover the business, but also how family and legacy played a role in their journey. Along the way, we'll uncover insights that, in our experience, are common among families who have successfully built, sustained, and transferred their wealth and their values to the next generation. But, like all good stories, our story starts with a crime. It started with a parcel being stolen off our porch. Chris had ordered me a 10th wedding anniversary gift and was stolen off our porch. So the conversation that night around the kitchen table was like, this is just going to continue to happen. I mean, what kind of protection does anything have sitting on a porch? And that's when we decided that it made sense to have a receptacle to receive packages. I mean, this is back in, you know, 99, 2000, when not many people even had home computers. And that's how we came up with the idea that our focus was going to be parcels because we felt the internet was was here to stay. There were plenty of locking receptacles back then, but they were all designed for mail. So you couldn't, even if you wanted to, you couldn't put a, a parcel into it. And I think we were kind of early adopters of online purchasing in general. We bought things online quite often. So we, we felt like we we saw a future need, even though it was not uh, particularly popular at that time. I, I really admire the foresight because this was back, like you said, in the 90s when online shopping wasn't something that everybody does every day, which is what we see currently. And, you know, you walk around my neighborhood and everybody's got one to five Amazon boxes on their doorstep. <laughs> so it's an incredible amount of foresight. At this time, you know, late 90s, early 2000, we were thinking, well, everybody's going to be buying computers, so we better design a parcel receptacle that can receive computers. Well, these weren't flat screen monitors. These were those really chunky, big, thick, deep monitor screens. So the first product we designed was the elephant trunk. And Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, it was like four feet by four feet by four feet. It was huge. And so we thought, okay, great. So we made a prototype, shared it amongst our friends 
who also were shopping online and they all basically had the same comment. It's like, where would I put that? And who wants that in front of their house? And what ends up happening is the flat screen monitor comes out. No longer do we need to have this giant parcel locker. So we kind of tabled the elephant trunk and then started focusing on a mailbox that the post office could deliver parcels. Because at that time, really, Amazon was... Their main core business was books. And so we thought, well, gosh, they have a contract with the post office, so we should design a mailbox that can receive a book. So Chris designed the Oasis, the very first Oasis, that have a hopper door. And that was the start of architectural mailboxes. Vanessa and Chris knew they had a great product, but they needed to get the attention of the two most important vendors who could help them scale their business, Amazon and Home Depot. But doing so would take an extraordinary amount of creativity and grit. And luckily, Vanessa had plenty of both. We had a lot of thoughts about how do we get our product, especially the Oasis series, how do we get on the checkout page at Amazon? We started trying to find a way to get into Amazon to get them to sell our mailboxes and really failed. And then got this idea, well, why don't we just try and find Jeff Bezos? And so started scouring the internet and oh my gosh, he was so hidden. And I just kept searching and searching and searching. And on like page 58, I found a phone number for Amazon headquarters, Jeff Bezos' office, and called it and just said, I I lied. I just said, hi, I'm actually having a package sent for Jeff's birthday. Do I have the correct address? And the person said, yep, that's correct. This is Jeff's office. I'm like, oh, awesome, great. Thanks so much. And hung up the phone. Then went into Chris's office and says, I've got his address and I've got the phone number to his office. We need to send him a product. And Chris goes, well, we can't just send him a product. We need to tell him a story. So Chris created this little PowerPoint. We sent it and an Oasis mailbox overnight with the reference in the label, happy birthday, Jeff, so that he would open it. And basically within a day, we got a phone call from Amazon and they said, well, we're interested in your your mailboxes. And I said, oh, the Oasis? They go, no, all of them. And that was the beginning. We heard from a buyer within a day or two, and we were up and running with them very quickly. It was kind of a crazy story, and it's just something that we felt like we had to be on Amazon because those people that were shopping online on Amazon were our target audience. I love that story. It's just, it was such a great demonstration of grit and how sort of determination and persistence pays off in the end and and just being creative, you know? (laughs) You know, it was such a great advantage to us at that time because we were doing all the fulfillment. In those days, Amazon didn't have uh, direct fulfillment centers. It was, you would drop ship it on behalf of the retailer. So it empowered us with a ton of data. We knew down to the zip code and in some cases, the street, we knew where our products sold. Color, shape, size, price point, which really armed us well when it got to the point where we were talking to the big box retailers about on-shelf programs. When we finally got the ear of Home Depot, actually, maybe a year or two later, we leveraged that data to figure out 
you know, they, they basically came to us and said, well, okay, we like the idea. We like the concept. Where should we test this? And we leaned on that information that we had from our, our dropship data, knowing the exact addresses where we were shipping and said, well, this looks like a hotspot. It happened to be in the Pacific Northwest and designed a, a small test in store for Home Depot. And of course, it was quite successful because that's where we were already shipping. So at that point, they saw an opportunity to go to a, a broader program nationwide. Well, Home Depot didn't come to us. We went to them, remember, Chris, when they were at the trade show and I couldn't get anybody at Home Depot to answer a phone call. Oh, yeah. When you when you chased them down the aisle. There was a merchant that was the mailbox buyer and I was mailing him product, letters, email, you name it, phone calls and crickets, just completely crickets, never heard from him, nothing. Then one day I'm standing in our booth at a trade show and he walks by and I could not believe it. I read his badge and I'm like, that's him. <laughs> I chased him. I kind of ran after him, called him by name. He turned around and looked at me like, do I know you? <laughs> and I told him who I was and I could tell in his eyes, like, oh, he knew who I was. I had been emailing him, calling him, <laughs> shipping him products. And I begged him to come back to the booth. And right there in the booth, after about 10 minutes of me explaining how it works and why it's so necessary, and he said, okay, I'm going to give you 50 stores to test, but I'm not doing any of the work. You have to pick the stores. And I thought, this is a dream come true. We know what stores to pick, and we did. And two weeks after we launched the test, he called and I thought, oh no, he's on the phone. This is going to be bad news. And I said to him, everything okay? He goes, okay. He goes, we are selling a $100 mailbox at a rate that I would have never dreamed of. And he goes, how many stores can you support? At that time, I think we only supported about 700 stores because the scale up the production was just kind of crazy. I, To this day, I still don't know where they all go. I mean, it's... <laughs> So many, so many mailboxes are sold, but uh, the need is still there. And, you know, so that's how we ended up at Home Depot. I think there's also kind of another story about Grit. When he did ask that critical question, how many stores can you support? We were not set up to support something like that. We become fearful in those situations, but that fear turns into intrigue and kind of turns into an ambitious need to kind of figure out how to do stuff. How do we develop the infrastructure to support 2000 Home Depot stores? What do we need in terms of distribution? How do we connect to them? All those little pieces to execute a request like that, I think grow out of that fear for not really knowing how to do it. You just dive in and try to figure it out. Working in a family business can often present challenging dynamics as it's never quite so easy to separate business and personal matters. I asked Vanessa and Chris what it was like building a business as a married couple. I think we, in a way, got lucky because we're very different in a lot of ways and we have skill sets that complement each other. And I think early on we talked about that and we talked about the need to make sure that we had our own area of responsibility and make sure that we um, respected each other's competencies. And I think we just learned to make sure that we defer to each other when it's a question of 
how to execute, how to operate in a particular area. Early on, we, we decided Vanessa, who is absolutely outstanding with customers, should certainly be focused on customers. And my history is, has been in engineering and product development and operations. So that made it obvious where, where my strengths lie. So we set up that line of delineation. We really focused on trying to keep those things separate. Of course, strategy and financial decisions, capital expenditures, things like that needed to be kind of jointly decided upon. So that helped us a lot. One of the things that we decided when we first started the business was that if we found that this business was going to disrupt our marriage, that we would either, you know, one of us go get a job somewhere else, do something different part ways, but not allow it to disrupt our family and our marriage. Oh, that's great. I think you had um, an anecdote about maybe it was your 25th wedding anniversary where you kind of, you understood the issue. We went to Italy for our 25th wedding anniversary and we were very busy. We were growing. It was one of those giant years where the double digits growth. So we check into the hotel and the front desk tells us, well, at four o'clock today, we have live music and champagne. Would you like to join us? Absolutely. So we go up to our room, get changed, and just about the time to go downstairs, Chris gets a, an email and he's like, I got to call Asia. I'm like, well, that's critical. You better get on the phone with them. So I go downstairs. They asked me if I wanted to wait for my husband. I said no. So they brought me a glass of champagne and it was only a two hour event. And it was five minutes to six and he still wasn't down there. And when he finally did get down there, he explained, but I fully understood. And I remember both of us talking about it at dinner that night had we not worked together and fully understood the day-to-day challenges, that could have been a huge fight. But it, things like that, you you definitely understand. And uh, and I think on that same trip, I had a call from Walmart that kept us locked in our hotel room for like four hours working on something. But things like that happen, and and you just kind of got to roll with it. What else can you do? The way Vanessa and Chris navigate their relationship reflects the approach of other successful business-owning families. Clearly define everyone's role within the business, whether shareholders, board members, management, or some combination, and respect those roles. And well-defined roles are not only important for growing the business, they are critical when you sell your business, which can often be a profound psychological turning point for a business owner and his or her family. 20 years into their journey, Chris and Vanessa ultimately decided to sell architectural mailboxes. In 2016, we lost three family members. And you all of a sudden have clarity. When you lose someone, you feel, okay, I'm not immortal. So by 2017, we had these hard discussions about what we wanted to do, when would we exit, what do we need, do we have enough money to retire? And around 2018, we started prepping for that. And then over the years, there was a investment banker that used to come around our booth and we became friends with him. And he would advise us oftentimes on things and certainly in hopes of representing us. And then when we finally said, okay, we're ready, he sent us his contract 
we turned it over to a, a family member who is an attorney. And he said, let me turn this over to our M&A guy and he'll just talk to you. And he'll point out some of the things that are on this. So we said, okay, let's have a call. So we did. And during that call is when we learned about Northern Trusts and the program they have to help people like us navigate the waters. This is, you know, this is not our wheelhouse. This is not our expertise. So we ended up having a call with the advisory group and they put a team together, brought us into the offices, and we were able to look at different scenarios of a sale, what it could look like, what our future financial situation would be, and so forth. And then took it a step further and ended up working with Northern Trust because there was so much we didn't know that we wouldn't have even known to ask the questions, the hard questions, the important questions. And we just sat and listened and were basically schooled that day <laughs> on M&A. I think we had talked about that possibility, that final exit strategy throughout the existence of our company since, since really the beginning. We had two little girls at the time when we started. And over time, they saw and they were a part of the growth of our business in one way or another, either through just you know being witness to, to what we experienced and what we did. Or in our older daughter's case, she actually joined the company shortly out of college. And so there was always this discussion in in the household about, is this something you two might want to do eventually? Is this something that, that is intriguing to you? There wasn't a lot of interest in actually taking the company over. And our older daughter, despite her expressing desire to join the company, didn't have a firm interest in, in taking the reins. So I think that was a moment for us to, to recognize what are our options? Who do we need to connect with? Back to what I was saying before about fear and intrigue and the, the fear that was presented to us by this notion about selling the business because we had never done it before. So we had no idea how to go about doing it. So we were fearful about how to go about doing that and what steps do we need to take to make sure that that we only had one shot at it. So that's ultimately what led us to partnering with with Northern Trust and letting them kind of lead us through that that whole process, which was absolutely fantastic. Thinking back through that process, is there any advice you can share with us for other business owners who might be thinking about selling their business? I would say first and foremost, don't go it alone. Connect with folks like Northern Trust to help guide you through the process. We talked before about grit and resourcefulness, and part of resourcefulness is knowing where your limitations are and leaning on people who do this for a living. You know, we don't sell businesses for a living. We don't prepare businesses for a living. We don't go through due diligence for a living. We, we need people around us to help us through that process who do this day in and day out. And I would add that you already have a full-time job running your business. Going through a sale is another full-time job. The more you can do upstream, it is going to pay off because if you don't, you're going to be doing both at once. And it's, it's daunting, exhausting, and you want to have things in order. You've worked really, really hard to build your business. You want to keep as much of the sale proceeds as possible. And there is a lot of, of planning that you can do to help you preserve what you've worked so hard for. Yeah, absolutely. It's 2023. You know, a couple of years have gone by since you sold your business. 
And I'm curious what keeps you busy, because I know for a lot of business owners, we mentioned the word retirement and their reaction is, I'm never going to retire. I'm always going to keep busy doing something, whether it's running my business or the next big thing on my list. So how have the two of you been spending your time since the sale of your business a few years ago? We've done a lot of travel. The first year after our departure, we went on a couple of trips that actually some of it has kind of been backlogged from the COVID era here. We've had some uh, real estate projects that we're now starting to execute. It would be dishonest for me to say that we have not talked about other ventures. And in fact, Vanessa the other day said, if I get bored of what we're doing, I might consider and then fill in the blank. And so there are these kind of inklings of perhaps another round. Although, well, first of all, I think we we have learned so much in growing the business that we did that I think we would be a lot more effective and a lot more efficient in how to set up a business and how to grow it and how to achieve businesses goals. So I I think we'd be a lot better at it, to be honest, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're enjoying spending more time with each other, more time with our children. So there's a lot of things that we have looked forward to for many years that I think we're going to be able to have a chance to execute. It's funny, Eric, we are busy every day. There is an agenda, a calendar, a schedule. After we sold, we stayed on, we both stayed on with the new owners and departed maybe 18 months later. That first week, all I wanted to do was just sleep and stay in my pajamas for like a week. Just just relax, do nothing, completely unplug. And then it, you wake up and you're like, well, I kind of have to have an agenda for me. I mean, after owning a business for as long as we did, spending anywhere from 100 to 180 nights a year in a hotel, it was just so great to be home, but still felt like, okay, I can't be in my pajamas till noon every day. I need to get moving. And and that's what we did. But I kind of made a personal commitment to myself that I would allow myself this first year, which will expire at the end of this month. And then I want to do other things in addition to the things Chris just described about travel and, you know, working out and playing pickleball that we just picked up, which is really fun. But also I've always wanted to mentor women in business, especially young women who are just starting out. I look forward to doing that. I think it'll, it'll fulfill my need to run a business. The way that Chris and Vanessa handled the decision to sell their business is characteristic of many of the business owners we work with who continue to thrive after the sale. One, they reflected on their values and what they wanted for themselves and their family over the long term. Two, they sought help to understand the sale process and the advisors they would need around the table. And three, they had open discussions with their children about their own plans and how they felt about working in and owning the business. Speaking of children, I asked Chris and Vanessa their approach to raising daughters who were well-grounded and who also felt empowered to pursue their own path in life. Just talking to them about what their dreams are, what what they hope to um, accomplish in their life is very important because it gives us the insight about how 
how we can construct our lives within the context of the business um, to support that. I, I think um, in our girls' case, they witnessed uh, our, um, our hard work firsthand. And I think there were, I'm, I know there were times when they felt perhaps um, not as important as, as they should have felt. It's always difficult to find that right balance about what you want to do in your career and, um, and how you want your family to perceive that. So on the financial side, how do you feel about that? I think exposure, honestly. We traveled a lot with our kids. And uh, with our oldest daughter, um, when she was about 12, we sent her with a group to Mexico to an orphanage. And she worked at that orphanage. And she saw firsthand how fortunate she was. And we continued exposing our kids to people who have real struggles and are the poorest of the poor. For instance, uh, for several years, we would host children from an orphanage in Uganda in our home with our girls. And they would hear their stories and have dinner with them, breakfast with them, lunch with them. It grounded them. It helped them recognize that many people struggle and money is, is not a given for everybody. So I do think exposure to others who have less and getting them involved in charities and giving back and doing for others. I think from an early age, it's critical and super important. And I think that's perhaps why they are who they are today. For most business owners and entrepreneurs, there's a why behind the hard work they put into their business, something beyond just the monetary rewards. I asked Chris and Vanessa to describe for me the why that gave them the drive to build and grow architectural mailboxes over two decades. I've been in the consumer products world, in sporting goods and then in, in toys and now, you know, in home goods my entire career. And it's really kind of a special feeling to see somebody enjoy something I made. It's fun. Yeah, I would have to say mine is very similar. I think I love creating. I love following trends. I love design. And I also love problem solving. And we solved a lot of problems in our little category. We completely revitalized the whole mailbox segment. No one was focused on updating the mailbox. So that part is what kind of fueled me. And I'm a people person. I loved working with all of our vendors and employees and our merchants at these retailers. They would get excited about talking about mailboxes with me. And we used to make jokes when somebody new would come on. When they first start on, I, I do a Mailboxes 101 with them. I sit down and fire up a PowerPoint. And then by the end of the, of the presentation, I would say, before you know it, you too will be a mailbox nerd. That part was fun to me. It wasn't like a job. That's great. I want to shift a little bit to the, this question about legacy, because I think it's an interesting one. Now that you've built a successful business, you've sold the business, and you're moving on to other adventures in life, can you give us a sense of what the word legacy means to you 
And have you done any sort of planning to make that legacy a reality for yourselves and for, for future generations? A lot of it was just how do we set our kids up so that when they go to college, they're not going to come out with a lot of debt. Chris did not have that type of support. Uh, it wasn't available to him. It was college. He worked almost full time and it was very difficult. And that discussion came up a lot when our kids were little. So that was always in the forefront. Well, we got the girls through school. And as we were getting towards an exit, Chris came up with an idea. He's like, how can we help our children's 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 children? And I'll, I'll let Chris share with you what he came up with and, and what we did. We brought that up with Northern Trust team about how do we make sure that college tuition and college is accessible to our descendants. So we thought, well, let's create a trust, basically a descendants education trust with the assistance of the Northern Trust wealth management team. As soon as we started talking about this, they were like, oh yeah, we do that all the time. Here's how to do it. Here are the steps to execute something like that. So we created this trust that was funded from the sale of the company and has a chance to grow for the next 20 years or so to kind of generate before it starts being consumed. So we're excited about the prospect of their children and their children's children having access to this, this fund that will help make sure that they go to college. From having a package stolen off of their front porch to creating a trust that will support the educational needs of their children for generations to come, Chris and Vanessa's journey echoes many of the principles that have helped successful families grow, sustain, and transition their wealth to their heirs. A big thank you to Chris and Vanessa for sharing their story with us today, and I wish both of them the best of luck as they continue their journey on the road to Y. If you enjoyed our conversation today, please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with Tiff and Leon Chen, who turned a side gig of baking cookies in their college dorm into a national cookie delivery phenomenon, Tiff's Treats. Treats.